talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. The Prime Minister spent the first National Day for Truth and Reconciliation on vacation in B.C. Good thing we kids were in school learning the rest of our history. Ted and Diana are in the newsroom. Will is on the board, and here's Scott Thompson! Good afternoon, it is 3.09, it is 900 CHML, I'm Scott Thompson, it is Hamilton Today, and the tune today uh, by Will number 2, Will Weber, who's on the board, and because he's the new guy in today, we said, hey, make him do it, make him pick the top hour song. Will, you know, you're a young man, I thought you would be, so, you know, picking something like Lisa or Diana, you know, something new, and and, pe- and you got a classic rock tune there. Explain yourself, Will, to uh, <laughs> Diana and the rest of the class. Oh, well, I'm, I'm a big metalhead, right? So I'm actually currently wearing a Metallica shirt, as wow. a, a lovely news lady can affirm for everyone. I'm wearing one too. Hey, there we go. <laughs> you're both wearing Metallica shirts? No, no I'm you're not, not. I'm not. Oh yeah. Cuz I was going to say I was going to say that's amazing cuz I got mine on too. <laughs> <laughs> I do I do wear them at home though. I have my I wear my husband's band shirts. Like he has a ton of band shirts. More than that, anyone known to man and I that's wear That's hilarious. Them yeah, yeah. They're you know what? My daughter has broken into my cuz I never buy anything. I'm still wearing the same thing I was 20 years ago, apparently according to my kids. <laughs> So my daughter breaks in and she steals that stuff. It's like, wait a sec, isn't that mine? I haven't worn it for a while. I haven't seen it in 10 years. Whose is that? And, you know, again, I think I have a Boston one somewhere. And you know what else? It's trendy, Scott. It's trendy now. It must be. Old NASCAR shirts. Tell me that one. Yeah. Bizarre. All right. So uh, the Will Man decides to go for a uh, a classic rock tune. We'll take it. Good choice. By the way, one of the first concerts I ever saw the old Maple Leaf Gardens in Toronto was Boston with its debut album. There you go. Wow. (laughs) Impressive. (laughs) Wow, Dad. That's amazing. Uh, All right. What's for dinner? All right, thanks, guys. Uh, great job, Will. I love that song, and it is a perfect choice for a Friday. And I must say, it is an all-request Friday on Hamilton Today. So if you want to hear 30 seconds of your favorite, you'll, uh, give Will Weber a call, and uh, he'll help you out. And uh, at least, you know, play 30 seconds of your favorite. Feel free to jump into the fun. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. And the phone lines are always open at 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell, Facebook and Twitter. Uh, jump into the the fun there as well on our twitter page you can participate in the poll question of the day which uh has been quite an interesting one the last couple of days uh and, and another one today do you want to start with yesterday's okay should ontario make the national uh day for truth and reconciliation a provincial statutory holiday uh right now 67 percent of you are saying and this was yesterday sorry so this is the final uh 67 of you said yes Yes. So, uh, and today's, uh, oddly enough, is the Prime Minister's trip to, uh, Tofino, British Columbia on the first day, first national day for truth and reconciliation being overblown. <gasps> is it being overblown? 
maybe there's some members of Good Morning Hamilton think it is. Uh, that'd be interesting. We should pull Good Morning Hamilton compared to uh, Hamilton Today and see what we get on this. Uh, right now, 58% of you are saying no. We picked up on this story uh, towards the end, uh, latter part of uh, yesterday, and I, I believe it was Global News that broke this story. Uh, and Mercedes Stevenson uh, telling us, well, chasing down the, pre- uh, the prime minister late in the day, and he was supposed to be in a series of meetings in Ottawa. That's what his official agenda uh, had said, but apparently no, he had jetted off to uh, Tofino, B.C. with the family, and many may say, well, the guy deserves a vacation, but again, it sort of sticks with our poll question from yesterday. Should Ontario be making it a, tr- a day of uh, a, a statutory holiday for the Truth and uh, National Day of Truth and, Rec- and Reconciliation? And 67% of you saying yes, so you can, everybody can take off. Meanwhile, I was asking my boy about it yesterday. They spent the morning chatting about it and uh, had a speaker come in and said it was pretty cool. So, um, yeah, um, I don't know. Uh, that's the same sort of debate we have around Remembrance Day is whether it's better to keep it going and stop and pause on our normal day or should we take it off. And clearly the prime minister gave a holiday, but not so we can all pay attention, but we, so we can get some time by the ocean. And it was fascinating because there was a global reporter chasing him down the beach. Uh, and, well, not really chasing, walking behind him. And uh, he kind of kept walking and, and didn't want to answer the question. And then the big burly guys came in and uh, the recording abruptly stopped. So uh, anyway, uh, I, I don't care which way you slice this. It's got nothing to do with being liberal, conservative, NDP, uh, green, or what was it? PPC. I always want to say PPE. That's something else. Uh, PPC, and you know, I don't think it remembers, I don't think it matters about politics one iota. This is just a, a, a bad, a bad thing to do, considering you stand up and, uh, meaning the prime, prime minister and, and just virtual, virtue signals in, with all of this, whether it's feminism or truth and reconciliation. And then for the very, 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 very first holiday, you'd think he would be, uh, all over the news and all over the country doing various things, kind of like he was the day before the election. But, you know, and then people, well, you know, what were the other leaders? Like, the other leaders aren't the prime minister. This is the prime minister. This is one of his main issues, along with climate change and feminism. And where is he? He's not around. So at the end of the day, um, it is what it is. And, again, I don't care what political stripe you're from. Uh, this is bad. And I also don't care what political stripe you're from. Uh, I don't think this person has the depth. I, I really don't. I, I've yet to find an academic who says that he is uh, a, a smart prime minister. Instead, you get lightweight, vacuous, um, whatever. Uh, but, but it seems to be all showbiz, all show, no go, all form, no substance. And uh, here we go again. If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. All right. Uh, this is a story that you may not even know has been brewing, uh, unless, of course, you've been to an optometrist lately or trying to get your kids to one. Uh, it, it's sort of been an ongoing uh, discussion, debate, uh, and is uh, obviously heating up between Ontario pharmacists and the Ontario government. To talk more about all of this, let's bring in Dr. Sheldon uh, Salaba, President of the Ontario Association of Optometrists, and with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah. So uh, give us, uh, give us a, a, an abbreviated version of what's going on here. Uh, it seems as if, as if this dispute's been going on for a while. Give us a bit of backstory here. 
Sure, I can give you an overview. So we've been trying to uh, work with the Ford government to engage around uh, appropriately funding primary eye care services in the province. Uh, optometry services have been neglected over a 32, 32 year time frame uh, in this province. And we were being paid $39 and 15 cents to provide an eye exam in 1989. And in 2021, we're being paid on average $45. We know that the costs to deliver those services without any compensation to the optometrists are around $80. And uh, we're trying to get the government to return to the table and uh, start negotiating with us in good faith. Uh, we want them to commit to one of two uh, simple principles. We either want to ensure that Eye care services uh, delivered by optometrists are no longer the lowest funded out of all provinces in Canada, or we want the government to commit to actually paying the true operating costs for those services. So what does, uh, and maybe we should clarify this, what does OHIP cover, what do they not, and what is this involving specifically? So we're talking about eye examination services for children, seniors, and adults who have medical conditions like diabetes and glaucoma. Mm -hmm. And uh, so right now, uh, what's happening with those patients? They're not being seen, is that accurate? That's correct. So we met with um, the health minister, uh, Christine Elliott, back in uh, November of 2020, and we met with her ministry for the first time in December of 2020. At that meeting, we offered to the ministry to do a cost analysis study with us to determine what those operating costs were to form the foundation of our negotiations. Um, the ministry went silent and we didn't hear from them for eight months. The budget was delivered in March of 2021. There was no funding announcement for optometry services. So at that point, we put the government on notice that we were going to set a negotiation deadline of September 1st. Um, to get them to come back to the table. They still remained silent and we didn't hear from them until August 5th. We had a brief two hour meeting with them there. Then we had two days of mediation in the middle of August. Following that mediation process, the government declared that the parties were too far apart. And within two hours of the mediation ending, they publicly released an offer uh, and, uh, and publicized it um, over the course. So we uh, sorry about that. Hang on a sec there, doctor. You broke up just a little bit uh, there when you said offer. So you could, could you just repeat that last sentence again? Sure, I can. So they provided us an offer inside of a confidential mediation process. And two hours after the mediation ended, they stood in media. So decade comes from and then they offered an 8.48% increase on our existing codes. Uh, that tactic is um, an example of bad negotiating. And uh, so services ended up being withdrawn on uh, September 1st. And since we haven't had any communication from the government. Uh, so, and again, you're breaking up just a little bit. So just to clarify, so as of September 1st, uh, you've withdrawn those ser services for those 19 and under and then those that are over 65. Have you heard back from government since then? We have not heard anything from them. So we need to return to the table. 
they're what we're asking are the commit to we will work with them and be able to take services as long as um, you know, they're able to uh, paying those operating costs. How did we get here? Is this just another example of healthcare being neglected for years and years and years, and then a COVID-19 global pandemic brings the weak links to everybody's attention? How did we get here? You know, I think in Ontario, uh, governments have never valued the eye care services that optometrists provide. We, like 70% of the patients that we see in our offices are um, OHIP insured. Um, You know, they never, there's been no organized structure around negotiations with our profession. And it's gotten to a point where they're exploiting our services to the point where they're only paying half of what it costs for us to actually deliver them. Where do you see this going, Sheldon? You know, I really hope that the public continues to um, contact their elected officials and put pressure on them to return to the the table. You know, today they are um, going forward with their administration of applying the $39 million for the retroactive payment that um, we performed 34 million services in the last decade. So that results to about a dollar a service um, is what they're providing. They're doing it unilaterally. It's not something that we asked for. It's a waste of taxpayers' money. And we'd really like them to keep it and use it towards creating a sustainable funding system for these services as we move forward into the future. All right, Dr. Sheldon Salaba with us, president of the Ontario Association of Optometrists. Uh, The Ontario government and the Ontario optometrists uh, still have not resolved uh, an issue in regard to fee structure. You're going to be hearing more and more about this story uh, as people realize uh, there isn't the service there that uh, there was prior to September 1st. Doctor, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you very much for having me. Let's have a bit of a COVID-19 update because uh, how about a pill? A pill that you can take that will help you if you get COVID-19. Is it true? Let's bring in Dr. Isaac Bogosh, staff physician, general internal medicine and infectious diseases associate professor, Department of Medicine, University of Toronto, and is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Oh, yeah, you too. Thanks for having me on. So uh, this is a pill. So uh, we should clarify, this is not a vaccine. This is a treatment after, I guess, you've you've uh, confirmed a positive test. Explain this to us. Yeah. So first of all, let's just put the caveat there. It, there's early data from press release. We don't have the data. Merck makes this. It's a massive pharmaceutical company. Uh, they they uh, they have a clinical trial. This total trial enrolls about 1,500 people. They're presenting data from the first 800 people. They say if people start this pill within the first few days of illness, it can cut hospitalizations and deaths by about a half. If this is true, if this holds up, if this stands the test of time, that's a big deal. I think it would be really helpful. It's, uh, it's uh, you know, currently most of the therapeutics are for use in hospital. If this is something that you can use to keep people out of hospital and start pretty quickly after someone has a confirmed infection, we could do a lot of good with something like this. So you said therapeutics, which means not necessarily a cure, like the cold, like the flu, whatever. Uh, We can make you feel better, but we can't necessarily cure it. You have to run the course. Is that what this is about? Yeah, that's exactly it. But if it, you know, it's 
listen, maybe it doesn't cure you, but it prevents you from dying. Like, that's yeah. good. I'll take that. Or prevents yeah. you from getting really sick and landing in hospital. Winner, winner. Like, that'd be wonderful. Like, if, if you can reduce hospitalizations and deaths by 50%, uh, we're doing something right. I should also note that this was among unvaccinated people. It's not quite clear uh, how this works with vaccinated people, but this is among unvaccinated. And again, Listen, most people who are in the business of infectious diseases and epidemiology and you know, hospital-based or clinical medicine saw this and said, wow, that's amazing. Let's see the data. So, you know, if it's true, if this holds up, this will be, uh, be a big one. So are you, we're all amazed at how quickly all of this has happened and how quickly uh, everyone in your business has come together and broken down the silos, use whatever phrase you want to get to where we are in, in, in record time. Are you surprised by this progress that we're seeing with this sort of uh, suggestion, if in fact it works? Or is this just par for the course where we are now with medicine? Uh, I don't know, a bit of both. I mean, it's really interesting to watch the clinical trials that have unfolded. And quite frankly, therapeutics are tough. Like, it's hard to make treatments. Vaccines, yeah. not that it's easy to make vaccines. Like, it's hard to make vaccines, too. But the vaccines are amazing and impressive, and, and, and they work really well. Therapeutics are also challenging. Like, let's just take a step back and think about other respiratory viral infections. The flu. We have a therapeutic that works so-so, Oseltamivir, also known as Tamiflu. Then you think of, there's a million other respiratory viral infections. The list is longer than my arm. We don't have therapeutics for them. It's hard. It's hard to make. And if this antiviral uh, actually works for COVID-19, it'll be a big deal. All right. This time of the year, many are talking about flu shots. We remember during the first couple of waves, no one was sure what would happen with the flu, but it turned out the precautions we were taking uh, to protect us from a global pandemic also kept the flu at bay. What are you expecting this year with the flu? So, you know, the the knee-jerk reaction is always the flu is predictably unpredictable. It is. We'll probably have more of a flu season this year compared to last year but it probably won't be as normal or as big of a flu season as we usually have. Notice the key word is probably. There's a lot of uncertainty here. There is flu circulating. Of course, it's not as much as as before. The masks and the hand washing and the distancing and the working from home really work. The other thing that really works that we don't really talk about that really drives flu rates low is the fraction of international travel or even national travel, that's actually going on. Now, there is more this year compared to last, but that also significantly reduces flu transmission on a global level. Um, We'll probably have cases this year. Listen, I think at the end of the day, what do you do? You get the flu shot, right? We know it's coming out really soon. We know it offers excellent protection. It's not perfect, but it reduces your risk of getting the flu. If you do get the flu, it reduces your risk of having a bad outcome from the flu. It's free. It's widely available. It works. Get the flu shot. Has COVID-19 made us better at creating a flu shot? Because we've always heard that the day, uh, the year after, it's based on the year before, and it's, it's so effective. Has this changed things? Uh, unfortunately, no. But a better answer is, here's an optimistic answer. Not yet. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it will. Okay. <laughs> Maybe it will. Here's why. Maybe we can start to use better technology and use... Um, mRNA technology for flu shots. Maybe we can up with mRNA technology. You can really create and mass produce vaccines quickly. So you can probably be more adaptable to what the flu 
strain is going to be and not have to make it months and months and months in advance, knowing that it's going to change along the way. So we, we probably will get better at flu shots as the years go by, but that benefit is not going to be reaped this year. Uh, we've only got a few seconds left uh, on the booster shot. Most of us started getting mass vaccination in, uh, in Canada around May, June. When do you think we're going to need a booster? I don't know. I don't know. I know that immunocompromised should get one now. People in long-term care facilities should get one now. We can debate. I would say people over the age of 65 would, I think it would be beneficial, I think, based on looking at the data. I wouldn't, we, but there's a lot of debate in the medical and scientific community about that, but that seems reasonable to me. Uh, well, when does everybody need one? I don't know when, but it's not now. Maybe. Dr. I. Dr. Isaac Bogosh with us, staff physician, general internal medicine, infectious diseases, associate professor at Department of Medicine, University of Toronto. Doctor, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well, and thank you so much for all you're doing for us. Oh, very kind. Have a great weekend. Forget about his two cents. Scott has an entire vault filled with opinions. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Global News got an exclusive look inside a Moderna plant. Uh, which is amazing considering these places are pretty hard to get into, kind of like Fort Knox. Uh, so let's bring in Carolyn Jarvis, Chief Investigative Journalist for Global News and is with us now. Carolyn, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am. Thanks for having me. So uh, how difficult it uh, difficult is it to get an interview and get inside a Moderna plant? <laughs> it's funny. You're not the first person to ask me that question. Uh, truthfully, it's rather tricky. There was a lot of negotiation. Uh, never mind the five COVID tests that we had in five days. I, I, getting the agreement uh, undertook a lot of brokering through the European offices and Canadian offices of Moderna and then the American offices of Moderna. And, of course, they, like we, saw the value in making sure that Canadians understood what was going on under the hood, uh, what the science was all about, the potential of the science, and to really get into the nitty-gritty behind whether or not we may need a booster shot how we make that determination. What are they seeing in their clinical trial data? So, so let's get right to the chase here. So when you leave, did you get a nice Moderna hat or a Moderna shirt (laughs) and then little gift bag with some booster shots in it or no? No no conflict of interest here. I did get a Moderna shot. Not there. I had already had one. (laughs) I'm I'm a mix and matcher, but that, that was not as a result of having visited the factory. No. So you talked to the value. What is the value? Why would they let you in? I think because communi- oh, I, mean, I don't need to tell you much like you wouldn't have to tell me. Communication is, is, a, is a very important thing for any company to make sure that we are sharing with people what is happening behind an organization. A lot of people have reluctance towards vaccines or misinformation behind vaccines, perhaps because they don't understand exactly um, what's behind the vaccine, how they are being uh, manufactured, how really is an mRNA vaccine put together? I mean, trust me, I've been studying it for months now. It's not an easy thing to communicate to people. And so you really do need to team up with skilled communicators who you welcome their scrutiny as well um, to look behind an operation and then to share that in an unbiased way and a balanced perspective with audiences. And that's what we undertook. And I know this is going to be an issue, so I'll get it right out there. Many have said this is a conflict of interest because they're trying to sell a booster. It's advertising. How do they position themselves there? Yeah, you know me, so I don't hold any punches. I just asked that question <laughs> flat out. I said, hey, you're just trying to sell your product. And they said, listen, yeah. 
here's our job. We created a vaccine. You're already taking a vaccine. What would be irresponsible for us is, this, is for us to be tracking these clinical trial participants, watching their antibodies wane, watching these breakthrough infections happen, and then not share the data? That's not responsible. What we have to do is share the data. What Health Canada has to decide is whether or not that warrants a booster. We don't get to green light whether or not Canadians take a booster. Our job is to share the data. And sure, maybe that's a bit of spin on their part, I might say. But that is, in effect, what the tic-tac-toe is in this space. They went to the FDA in the United States, as did Pfizer-BioNTech, and say, hey, you need one of our boosters. And the FDA pushed back, and they said, okay, we're only going to give boosters to people 65 and older and to at-risk employees. I mean, that's still millions of people, but the FDA, much like Health Canada, said, no, 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 this is what we're deciding to do. We don't want to give a booster for all. What the pharmaceutical companies can advocate is one thing, but the ultimate determination is made by the regulator. So when, and a lot of people want to know, when will we know when we need a booster? Who, where will we get that information from? So let me give you two pillars of information here to choose from. Column A is Moderna that is watching some of the earliest data on how its vaccines are performing from its clinical trials. And its data is indicating that starting at about the six-month mark after your second shot, antibodies start to decrease. Big asterisk here. We should expect them to decrease. That's exactly how vaccines work. But your cellular immunity always kicks in. However, in concert with the rise of the Delta variant, they started to see at about the one-year mark a rise in breakthrough infections for a booster on that basis, saying they want to get ahead of those breakthrough infections. Column B of information are all these epidemiologists and virologists in Canada who are studying vaccine effectiveness in real time. And all of that in Canada is really right across the board showing great performance from these vaccines, holding up against the target objective of severe outcomes, hospitalization, and death. We're talking like in the mid to upper 90s in vaccine percentage effectiveness. So Really robust vaccine performance. So the question becomes, do we need a booster today? And I think the science would say, no, we don't. Will we need a booster ever? We just don't know that yet. Mm. In America, they got their shots earlier. And in Canada, we spaced out our doses. That was so controversial at the time. But actually what that's proven is that likely we have a higher and more prolonged immunity as a result of spacing out the doses. So, to translate, it means Canada may not need a booster as urgently as other countries. Wow. There you go. Our shortage actually paid off for us. Um, Any more from Moderna on the 18 to 24 issues? And the Ontario government issuing or saying, Ontario Health Table saying uh, more Pfizer than Moderna in this situation. Did they address that at all? Yeah, we were really worried about the incidents that we had some signals of across Canada. And, of course, I'm going to put the label warning out not too long ago. And so we asked them about that, and they said when they did their clinical trials on booster shots, they did not see any indication of myocarditis or pericarditis, much like they had not seen it in their primary series clinical trials. And they said, really, that's because it is so rare, and it truly is rare, that's something that will only bear out in real-world data. So uh, they could only tell us what they had seen. It doesn't mean it's not going to happen. But what they could report is that they didn't see it in their clinical trials. All right, Carolyn Jarvis with us, Chief Investigative Journalist with Global News. Make sure you hit the Global website and watch Global News tonight for more on all of this as she ventures into uh, Moderna's plant in Boston, uh, just outside of Boston. Carolyn, thanks for the time. Be well. Hey, my pleasure. You too. 
The truth and only the truth. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. All right, Ted uh, Michaels and Diana Weeks are with us. Will Weber as well around the round table. Uh, before we even get started, because it's a Friday, you know, and we're pandemics and elections finishing and whatever going on uh, let's light letting uh, let's lighten things up just a little bit and uh, since we're close to the dinner hour listen carefully to this this is a sandwich known to all by reputation for the last 40 years mcdonald's has on and off offered the mcrib which has become a cult favorite for a limited time which always helps mickey d's sales the sandwich consists of a boneless pork patty which is shaped like a rack of ribs loaded with barbecue sauce wrapped lovingly in a bun mcdonald's points to the mcrib's social media interest for solidifying its icon status the mcrib is back on november 1st the most important sandwich of the year I have eaten the ribs of God. <laughs> All right. Uh, because it's, uh, I don't know, around for a limited time, does that make it any better? Ted, you and I are around, are old enough to remember the McRib, uh, the McRib the first time around. Yes, I didn't have it then. <laughs> you never tried one? Come on. Never, no, never did. As a Why ma- not? As a matter of fact, <laughs> boy, I'm going to get in trouble for this one. I have not eaten at that establishment anything from there it's got to be at least 20 years. And, I, I, you know, sorry, and, 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 you know, I, I try to eat healthy, as you know. I would be a great science project because I'm convinced that if I did, my face would turn green and there would be all <laughs> kinds of, you know, stuff coming out. So that's just me. I'm not saying don't. I'm not saying do. I, but that's just me. So I, this one, um, I, I really can't comment because, as I say, I don't. I don't go there. I don't eat there. Scott, can we start a petition to have Ted eat it right around? Like, we'll, we'll buy one. We'll save it for Christmas time. He can eat it, turn green, and then he can be the Grinch. Yeah. I think we should just have an experiment and, and see how he feels over the course of the afternoon. <laughs> oh, yeah. You put it on social to... media, right? And everybody else sees me turn. Yeah. <laughs> We've got to bring somebody We got to bring somebody else in for the 530 newscast. Yeah, exactly. Gone. Ted is uh, vomiting, yes. Your thoughts on this, Diana? Are uh, you a McRib fan? No, I'm with Ted here. I, I'm not going near that thing. And I uh, I probably, <laughs> I think the last time I had McDonald's, man, it, I think it was Nuggets like five years ago See? or something. Yeah. Yep. But no, like I'm the same. I don't know if I turned green, but I definitely feel you know it. What I think? I think it's, see, you you said a very valid point there, Diana, you feel it. And I remember being younger and talking to a a salesperson actually at 875 Main Street West. And they were talking about how they can't eat that anymore, that it just da-da-da-da-da. And I swear, once you turn like 40 or 50, something it's in it, it just, it tastes good for like 20 minutes. And then the next thing you know, you feel like, uh, well, you know how you feel. Well, it feels like, like, (laughs) like I know that, that my face would feel flushed. I would feel like like there's something cold amiss, sweats. You're, confu- you're confusing this with running the Bay Road race. Well, no, <laughs> no, but oh, somebody just I just snorted. I just snorted you see? Just snorted. Oh man, but, on no, live no. radio. But but no, that's you know I'm I'm convinced that this would happen to me. So you know no. I I eat healthy. You know lots of Diana's seen me. She's walked by, looked at my lunch, and oh, look at that. So, yeah, uh, no, I... And and see, that's the thing. And we eat pretty healthy, too. But, you know, uh, I think the healthier you eat when you venture off like that, then it really seems to affect you. Oh, God, yes. 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 (laughs) Once again, together, both of you. Yes. Uh, So what is your favorite fast food, then? 
What, what, what is something that you'll, you know, even if it doesn't make you feel the best afterwards, because, I mean, it's not designed for that. Uh, so what is your favorite? Mine is, I would say, like, something like smokes poutine, like yeah. a good takeout yeah, poutine, sure. you yeah. know, gravy, cheese curds. I mean, the ingredients are pretty fresh. It's just very heavy. I yeah. think that's technically fast food, right? Sure it is. Is yeah. is pizza considered fast food? Yeah. Yeah, it would well, be. Then, yeah. Well then I'm in. So any, you know, there there's some and establishments great for you. Some some establishments that I don't frequent as often because uh I find that the chains aren't as appealing to me as yeah. the mom and pop organizations. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh and when they make it it's like oh it's really, really good. But yeah, that that's my go to and, and I can go to that several times a week if I have to. Remember when pizza restaurants were huge? You yeah. know, like they, you just go to places and they just serve pizza. I mean, like Frank Vatier's, uh, oh, Frank some v- of the other big uh, restaurants like that. That seems to have gone away. Frank Vatier's used to have these big jugs. Why do I remember this? Big jugs of beer that I you rem- could have with your pizza. <laughs> I remember that too, Ted. <laughs> Boy, it was so good. It was so yeah. good. <laughs> Again, probably about 40 years ago, but, uh, you know. Uh, onion Thompson. rings for me. Uh, Ooh, onion rings. Oh, onion rings. I just, if you get someone who's just makes makes. I mean, sometimes they can be terrible. They can taste different depending on where you go. But if uh, I remember this place where I grew up, and they used to, I remember there was like four Italian brothers that ran this uh, fast food place, and they literally used to make the onion rings by hand. So they would chop up the onion and then they'd bat, put them in the batter and fry them for like ten seconds, and then pull them out and freeze them, and then throw them into the fryer. And oh, oh my goodness, I was doubling over half the time. Nope. All right. Uh, poll question of the day want to ask you because we talked about this yesterday are we making too much over the prime minister going to Dofino on vacation instead of participating in the very first uh, national day for truth and reconciliation are we are we overblowing this nope because when i think now of the prime minister and the first thing i thought of well two things a optics it does not look good and b he looks very elitist do what i say don't do what i do and when you think of what happened, remember last uh, Rod Phillips went away at Christmas time yep. and everybody yeah, yeah, got so yep. upset? Yep. How how dare you do this? How dare the prime minister? You know, he's very good at apologizing for everything that's happened. But yeah. now, all of a sudden, he go and, and the story, and kudos to Global News for getting it. It, yeah. it went from the prime minister was working in Ottawa, they found out, to the prime minister is working in Tofino, they found out. And then the, they got him, as you said, they chased him on the beach in Tofino. So had they said initially he's taking time off with his family to celebrate Truth and Reconciliation Day and they're going to BC, I don't think there there be a problem. But the fact that they're trying to obfuscate this thing yeah. and lie? He, he should have been on every television screen in that yeah. orange shirt, yep. you yeah. know, going to different, you know, former residential schools. And, and, I, and I think there was something on Twitter as well. There was, um, you know, a First Nation out toward the BC way. Yep. And and they had said something along the lines of, you know, they had invited Trudeau to come, yeah, you know, yeah. uh, pay their respects to all the children. And and I mean, you know, like that that's a slap in the face. Come on. Like and, and what and, and what gall to do that? I mean, the election just ended. What, he doesn't need the vote now? Like now he goes Ooh, there, yeah, you know? I, know. <laughs> I think a lot of people are thinking Sing that, Diana. Nice I hear about, I hear it. In regard to uh, the Prime Minister, which is the poll question of the day, uh, are we overblowing the Prime Minister uh, buzzing off to Tofino and missing the first, the very first Truth and Reconciliation Day? 
Uh, and obviously the majority of you are saying no. Andrew says uh, this is the one time that the prime minister can't afford to offload his responsibility on the minister of defense or the chief medical officer or anyone else. He has failed. I know he has a family. We all have families, but do your job. And again, you know, I don't think this has anything to do with political stripe, although I'm sure a lot of the people that are defending the prime minister are huge supporters. Uh, how else can you defend a prime minister who on the very, 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 very first uh, National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, something that he sells so much in regard to uh, his his candidacy and the person that he is. It's climate change. He's a feminist. He's an indigenous supporter. And to, to not even be smart enough, to not even be aware enough uh, that you should be there. You know, we did a show yesterday. And, you know, obviously uh, our, our company decided that we needed people on the air to discuss this. And, and we dedicated every single guest, every single se- segment to the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. Because as I'm designing the show and, and, and Liz and, and or Will and I are, are producing this, we're thinking, you know, we, we got to do something that's around the day. Otherwise, it doesn't make any sense. Like, how do you, here we are on the very first uh, National uh, Truth and Rec- uh, Reconciliation Day, and, and let's talk about the garbage issue, or let's talk about, you know, I mean, it just doesn't fit. You know, especially as the momentum of this day grew over the course of the 24-hour period. So, you know, we all made the conscious effort, you know, we're doing a radio show. It is the very first National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. Maybe we should pay attention to it. Maybe we should design our show around that. So to think as a leader, as a prime minister, that, nah, I'm just going to blow it all off and go on holidays. And the poll question of the day yesterday was, should this be a holiday? No, it shouldn't be a holiday because people are just going to take off and do something. And that's clearly, that is exactly what the prime minister did. And to me, this has nothing to do with being a liberal, a conservative, uh, a green, an NDP, a PPC, whatever the heck you are. This is nothing about politics. This is about being plain stupid. This is about being so arrogant that you think it doesn't matter. This prime minister stands up and he chastises everybody because they don't think or act or do the things that he does or want what he wants. This utopian vision of a rich kid who has never had to put a roof over his head or put food on the table or his kids through education or any of that. And if this is not further proof, this man is a lightweight. I don't know what is. I don't know what is. Because to me, it's not about whether you're on the left, the right, you're liberal, you're conservative, you're NDP, you're green, you're this. Nothing to do with it. This is about a guy who doesn't have a rat's ass idea what he's doing. He's more like his mother than his father. He's a rich kid who fell into the job when the party was in third, pl- in third place because of his name. Because somebody saw the speech that he gave at his father's funeral and said, wow, look how that's grabbing everybody's attention. And off they went. I have yet to have any political science professor, any academic, say anything in regard to this man's ability to think.
Nobody has praised him as an academic. His father was. Doesn't matter if you agree with his politics or not. But at least his father was an academic. This guy's a lightweight. And he makes stupid decisions. And this is the guy's vision we're supposed to follow? What the heck is wrong with us? And I'm sorry, any other opposition is better than this. Because this is somebody who's driving around in his parents' car with his eyes closed. He doesn't have a clue what he's doing. Other than the experience he has had growing up in the residence of the Prime Minister and being his son. That is the only thing this man brings to the table. And a whole pile of hanger-ons like Gerald Butts or Telford or any of those others that are actually more in control of the country than the damn Prime Minister is. And who the heck in the Prime Minister's office said this was okay? We do not, you do not need to be front and center on everybody's television set for the very first day for truth and reconciliation. You don't have to be there. Go to the beach. Who said that? Where was someone in the Prime Minister's office that's saying, that's a pretty stupid move, Mr. Prime Minister, considering this is your day. You are the one that are, uh, that pushed for all of this. This is what you're selling. Just like your feminism and everything else that you, that gets people's attention and divides the country. Divides the country. This man is not a uniter. And this action to snub his nose on the very first national day of truth and reconciliation is proof. And I don't care what your political stripe is. This man's a lightweight. Catch up on the news and information you've missed. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Some fascinating information today coming out of the case of Peter Nygaard, uh, both with uh, as, as heading off to the United States uh, on an extradition uh, warrant, also being charged here in Canada. 80-year-old Peter Nygaard is being sent to the U.S. for his trial. His lawyer says, though he's agreed to the extradition, he still proclaims his innocence. To talk more about all of this, Joseph Newberger is with us, criminal lawyer with Newberger and Partners LLP, and on the line now. Joseph, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Oh, my pleasure, Scott. Hope you are, too. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, update us on this, because it seems to be quite fluid. Obviously, he has agreed, Newgard ha- or Nygaard, sorry, has uh, agreed to uh, this extradition, but now there are charges here. D- do one set of charges affect the other, the fact that this is going on simultaneously? Yeah, that's a, a very good point. So he made the decision uh, intelligently to waive extradition and to go to the United States, because trying to stop extradition to the United States is trying to stop winter coming to Canada. It's just not mm. possible. So uh, at 80 years of age, wasting his time in custody doesn't make any sense. But, you know, along with this decision came the Toronto Police Service laying charges. Now, it's up to the Minister of Justice, so the Federal Minister of Justice, to decide should he be extradited at this time or should he remain in Canada be sent on a warrant to uh, Ontario so that he could face the charges here and have that process start. I suspect, uh, because the United States started this process some time ago, 
and are very anxious to prosecute him, that what the minister will decide is that uh, he should be uh, sent down to the U.S. for his trial, and maybe there will be some arrangements after that for Mr. Nygaard to come back to Canada to face the charges in Ontario. Never mind, there's also possibly pending charges uh, in Winnipeg as well. So there wasn't any uh, advantage for uh, Peter Nygaard to leave Canada and go to the United States to avoid the charges in Canada. Eventually, it's up to the Justice Minister what happens next and which charges he faces first. Yes. So, again, a good question. So when you talk about an advantage, I would, you know, as an individual who would be accused, I think it's far better for uh, an individual to face trial in Canada than the United States. Canada, in my opinion, has a far better and stronger uh, judicial process and a sense of fairness. And I think uh, trials here are are much more fair uh, than in the United States because everything in the U.S. is tried uh, in the media to such an extent that it's very hard to have an impartial jury. That being said, um, if he didn't waive extradition, he would be stuck in a process that could go on for years, uh, and and the the Toronto process could also uh, uh, start, and he would be in custody for such a long time at the age of 80, uh, it, it makes absolutely no sense for him. So I think this was the only move he could do, and the one that made sense in the circumstances. So why the Canadian charges now? Um, would he have been aware of the Canadian charges that they were pending before agreeing to this? I would suspect that there was... Uh, he, he certainly would have had some knowledge. I'm sure Mr. Greenspan uh, would have received some, um, some, uh, you know, notice from Toronto Police Services. Uh, uh, the fact that they were conducting an investigation, there were complaints made in Toronto, w- was not going to be a secret. Um, and uh, I, and regardless, I think the decision to waive extradition uh, would have been made uh, regardless of whether these charges were pending or not. Um, just simply because you've got to end one of those processes, which just holds him up. When do you think he will be in the United States, Joseph? Well, if uh, if the minister agrees to extradition now, he could be moving as quickly as 30 days. It's not a very difficult decision because he's consenting. There's no real submissions to make to the minister. So uh, he may be just speaking with counterparts in Ontario uh, of the attorney general's office um, about uh, prosecution, and I think within 30 days or so, he could be transferred to the United States. Uh, he still proclaims his innocence. He has a long road ahead of him. Oh boy, yeah, he does. Yeah. So the United States is going to be a difficult process. Um, there, you will see that you know the trial will happen more quickly, uh, simply because the U.S. has has uh, not a robust system when it comes to disclosure of evidence, and they move things along uh, in a manner which is a little swifter than here, not to the advantage of anybody, frankly, sometimes. But, um, but he's going to be facing, you know, an accusation, but he may be facing evidence of a number of other witnesses or complainants. So that, that'll be challenging, and I'm sure he's going to get some uh, notoriety down there, unfortunately, uh, which you know, may impact his, his trial process. Uh, but he has a long road, and then if he comes back to Canada to face charges here, um, those are going to take some time. And they're, they're also going to be a very difficult trial. 
Joseph Newberger has been with us, criminal lawyer with Newberger and Partners LLP, talking about Peter Nygaard and uh, possibly trip to the United States to face these charges as charges in Toronto materialize, faced with sexual assault and forcible confinement from Toronto police. Uh, thank you so much, Joseph, for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. My pleasure. Take care and be safe. You might remember this before the last municipal election uh, that uh, Doug Ford uh, went into Toronto City Council because he felt it had been become too bloated and inefficient and just too many cooks in the kitchen. He chopped the thing in half. And then, of course, everybody was screaming and yelling, not enough representation. Uh, everybody wants a job in the government. Everybody wants a job at City Hall. Everybody wants a job, a piece of the pie. Uh, but the Supreme Court of Canada dec- uh, decided today to uphold a ruling on Toronto's council size and have sided with Doug Ford and the Ontario government. Will this set the tone for other cities to look at their bloated council system? And should it happen here in Canada? Well, it looks like the Canadian Taxpayers Federation thinks so. Let's bring in Jay Goldberg, interim Ontario director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation and is with us now. Jay, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am. Thanks for having me. So what was the reason of doing this? Is this just to shrink the size of government, bloated, inefficient? What's the reasoning behind this? Well, there were many who speculated at the time that uh, Doug Ford, once he was elected premier, decided to cut down the size of Toronto City Council because of his own experience on council. Uh, And I think he found in downtown Toronto there were too many cooks in the kitchen, as you suggested. There were 47 city councillors dealing with each other, and I think he'd experienced there was a lot of years where it was tough to get stuff done. And 47 councillors with uh, their salaries, with... uh, their whole staff and research budgets and all all of that other stuff was costing a fair chunk of money. And so Doug Ford decided he would cut council virtually in half. Uh, the, the reason it went through all the court process is that he cut down council once the municipal elections were sort of already on right. the road. Right. It was a few months before the election, but that was really the source of the controversy. Mm-hmm. And that was the ruling today. But I think it also upholds uh, that Doug Ford may have had it right in terms of trying to get government more efficient and accountable, and this might be the way to do it. Some have said that in the end this is costing more because others just double up their budgets. Any validity to that? So um, in a, there is, but I don't think that's attributable to Doug Ford. So the, the provincial government decided to cut the size of council, but uh, it was the decision of the councillors to vote to increase their own budget. And so that's... Um, you know, very negative in terms of uh, Toronto taxpayers wanted to see a smaller city council. And part of the rationale for that was to have savings. And so the provincial government said we're cutting the size. And then the city council went on and said, OK, but we're going to virtually double our budget. So hmm. there, there is justification for that. But it certainly wasn't the provincial government that gave them the extra funds. Uh, is the doubling of the budgets justified or is that to prove a point that it's not a cost cutting measure? I don't think doubling the budgets were justified at all. If you look at comparable budgets uh, in other cities, other municipalities, if you look at Hamilton, uh, the budgets are much smaller than they are in Toronto. And I don't think it's... Uh, there isn't an economy of scale idea here. If you're having uh, twice as many constituents, you shouldn't have to uh, double the budget. Uh, there should be some uh, economies of scale. You could certainly have a conversation about some increase because of the increased size of the riding. But quite frankly, the way it's set up in Toronto, we have uh, 25 city councillors now. 
but there's 25 MPPs, there's 25 MPs, and so it makes a lot of sense to uh, go according to the writings. So where do you think this is going to go? Do you think that once another government comes in, this will all be reversed, Jay? Well, what I think is uh, that's quite possible. Uh, the opposition was opposed to what uh, Doug Ford did at the time. Uh, however, I would say that the new system is working. It's working relatively well. And I think a lot of people would say that, uh, you know, even though Doug Ford may have had, uh, uh, you know, may have been a little problematic to make the change uh, once the campaign was underway, I think there was a lot to be said for the change that was made. I think it was absolutely necessary. And it seems that Toronto City Council has been functioning well over the last few years in the smaller model, uh, which is why I've said that uh, if Doug Ford wants to use the Toronto model as a model for other parts of the province, I think that's a great idea, and I think that we should go forward with that. Uh, Are other cities watching that, or is this all the province that's watching this? Uh, And will we see, as you say, uh, this used as a template? Right. So it's highly unusual, uh, if ever, for politicians at one level to reduce their size. We saw it with uh, Mike Harris at Queen's Park, reducing the number of MPPs. But the way you're likely to see it would be through the province doing something like what they did with Toronto, uh, however, you probably would not see it in the run-up to municipal elections, so it wouldn't have a court challenge. But if we look, for example, at the city of Ottawa, they have 22 councillors, and the size of Ottawa is far, far smaller than Toronto. And so the number of councillors they have per person in Ottawa is way higher. So what it looks to me is that perhaps Doug Ford uh, focused on Toronto City Council because of his own experience on council and the the inefficiencies, but we've we've seen a lot of problems with councils all across the province, particularly in the city of Ottawa, that could warrant some examination. Uh, are municipalities concerned? Uh, are a lot of them bloated? I think they're well. Of course, politicians are concerned anytime you're talking about reducing their budgets or reducing yeah. the number of politicians. But I do think um, you know if we were looking at saving twenty-five million dollars a year by reducing the size of Toronto City Council. As we said, the, the, the council decided to increase their budget to counteract that. But that's certainly something we could hope to see, uh, you know, elsewhere in the province. But there is something to be said for a smaller number of uh, people in council. You know, in Ontario, we don't have at the municipal level political parties. So when you're looking at the Ontario legislature, when you're looking at the House of Commons, yeah, we have a lot of representatives, but they largely toe the party line. And so... When you're in a situation where you have dozens of councillors, none of whom are obligated to a party, you tend to see a lot of chaos, which is what we saw in Toronto for several years. Hmm. And so I think when people make the argument that, hey, look, we have a lot more people, uh, you know, at Queen's Park around Parliament Hill, I think we really need to keep in mind that in Ontario, we don't have political parties. And so if politicians want to work together uh, and get stuff done, sometimes that means we need fewer cooks in the kitchen. Jay Goldberg with us, interim Ontario Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. They are happy the Supreme Court of Canada has decided to uphold the ruling on Toronto City Council's side, siding with Doug Ford and the Ontario government uh, to keep the City Council the size that it is. Jay, thanks for the time. Be well. You as well. Thank you. If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, and, of course, uh, columnist with your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Always. Yeah, great. How are you? 
All right, I'm doing fine. Thank you so much. All right, uh, poll question of the day. Are we putting too much emphasis on the prime minister missing the very first truth and reconciliation uh, day? Are we blowing this out of proportion? You know, Scott, we talked about this yesterday. When you called, you asked about this yesterday. Yes. And, you know, as we've learned more, and as we've had a little time to think about this, I I think we're, we're underplaying this, quite honestly, and I'll tell you why. We are not two weeks away from an election when Justin Trudeau, one of the key points he was making was this was an election about leadership, about character, about who do you want leading your country, about the character of the person who was going to be in charge. Hmm. And it's not that he just missed the Truth and Reconciliation Day, that he was the one, his government, he brought this into play. It's that his office, and by extension him, tried to hide this and lied and, and said he was in Ottawa having meetings and he was on a plane flying over to have a, a holiday with his family. And it wasn't even until Global News found him yeah. walking on the beach that they finally had to say, oh, oops. There was no oops. There's no, Scott, there was no chance that they didn't know where his plane was or where the leader of the country was. He didn't slip out to go buy a pop at a 7-Eleven. Yeah, this is this to me. It's not. It has something to do with the Truth and Reconciliation Day, but this is a, as I say, two weeks after an election, yeah. we've got a prime minister who looks at the country and says, "I can do whatever I want." And what are you going to do about it? I agree I've with hundred percent. I, I think I've got this away isn't... with blackface. I've got away with SNC. I've got away with this. I've got away with that. You keep electing me. I can do whatever I want. And what are you going to do about it? That's the problem. Yeah, I think this has very little to do with whatever your political stripe is, left, right, political, conservative, uh, liberal, NDP, green, what have you. This is just a lightweight and a complete lack of judgment. And and as you said, as he wears this all of the time, whether it's climate change, whether it's indigenous issues, whether it's feminism, the self-proclaimed feminist uh, prime minister, he divides people. He divides people on principle, and then he takes off on vacation. And to me, I, I don't care what political party you're from. This is just absolutely disgusting. I mean, I'm not sure how the prime minister's office could have said to him yesterday, this is okay. I mean, I did a show yesterday, and every single segment was on truth and reconciliation because it just didn't feel right talking about COVID-19 on the very first of one of these days. So it just amazes me how he doesn't think the same way that the average middle-class person thinks. He either is frankly dense, and there's no other word for it. He's either dense so he doesn't get why some of the things he does rankle people so badly like this, or as I said before, He doesn't give a crap because nothing ever sticks to him and he never pays a price. And look, you mentioned a bunch of things there. Truth and reconciliation. Called the holiday, blew it off. Climate change. So he flies across the country in his own jet to to go and have a holiday. He could have taken a holiday at his cottage in Gatineau or wherever the cottage is nearby there. And I'm not, look, I'm not even against him going to these places. It's the preachiness to everyone else. Yeah, he lectures everybody on what to do, and then he does whatever the hell he wants. I know it's disgusting. The kokanee grope, the the the, the allegation that he once groped a reporter, then said, "Well, this is a learning moment for everyone." No, 
it's a learning moment for you. I didn't grow up anyone. Scott, you yeah. didn't grow up anyone. Yeah. Why, why am I having a learning moment from this? It's the preachiness. And then, as I say, not two weeks after an election where character was one of the issues and leadership was an issue, and we get a complete misdirection and a, and a, and a try to pull the wool over everyone's eyes, and then only when there was a camera on him walking on the beach did they say, oh, yeah, sorry, change of plan. Come on. Come on. I mean, <laughs> and I thought, it was, I thought it was quite interesting that he didn't even turn around to talk to the reporter. He just kind of well, kept walking fast. Say? What's he going to say? I don't really, know. Really, what's he going to say at that point? He, like, right at that point, he's walking forward going, where's my secret service or whatever we call yeah. it? Come on, secret where's service. the big burly guy? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. All right, Scott Radley with us, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up next in uh, columnist with your Hamilton Spectator, and I'm sure you're going to hear more on this. As always, Scott, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thanks, Scott. All right, as always on Hamilton Today, uh, we're going to allow you, the good listenership, to get up on top of the CHML soapbox and have your last word. Yeah, hi, it's Dave. Uh, yeah, bring back the rib. It's right up there with solid green. <laughs> Nick Rib! Oh. Limbs!